What a great blessing that we can come together this afternoon. I'm encouraged by all of you who are here and thankful for those who are joining with us online as well today. Thankful for the God who's made this possible and has called us to be together for the love of His Son. For the blessing of learning this lesson that Jesus is teaching as He preaches here on the Sermon on the Mount. It's such an important thing for us to consider. As he told that multitude that unless their righteousness should exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, they would by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And that must have been a confusing thing for them to hear, especially in the context of all he was teaching here. This new look at what the character of the citizen of the kingdom of God must really look like. Here are people who were certain of their belonging to the kingdom of God. These are the Jews. These are God's chosen people. And Jesus is challenging them to consider where are they, consider their ways, we might say, as we've been looking at that in Habakkuk. And so he mentions the Pharisees here. We run into the Pharisees often in the New Testament. Who are the Pharisees? Well, they're a group that are known for their strict and literal interpretation of the law of Moses. They went by the letter of the law very stringently. But of course, they were seen by many among the Jews as being righteous because of that. They know what they're talking about. These are the men, if you have a question about the law, you're going to seek these men out because they have dedicated their lives in serving according to Moses' law down to the very letter. These are the men who are the studied uh, law uh, keepers. But Jesus often challenged them because they trusted in their own goodness and really, in effect, in their own capacity to save themselves because they were so good. These were people who would brag about how good they were and how bad others were in comparison. And so they became self-righteous. They may have started in a good place. Certainly desiring to keep Moses' law was a good thing. But it became for them a stumbling stone. Because they began to see themselves as the only ones who could keep it and everyone else was unworthy. And they began to uh, pull themselves away from people that they should have been seeking to help. And they began to consider themselves righteous on their own merit. So I want you to consider with me how John, and, uh, John the Baptist and Jesus challenged them. I'll try to stay within the book of Matthew as much as possible looking at these challenges. We'll go outside a couple of times. But Matthew chapter 3, here are people coming down to the baptism that John is preaching. And this is something new and it's exciting. It's been 400 years since there's been any prophecies that have been written down or, or spoken. They've been repeated, the things that were written up to the time of Malachi. But it's been 400 years. It's been a terrible time in Israel's history of suffering. And yet these are the remnant that have held on and they're waiting for this day when the Christ is to come. And here comes John the Baptist out of the wilderness saying, I'm the precursor. <laughs> I'm the one that Isaiah was telling you about would come, and I want to preach to you about the one who is coming to, to bring salvation. And so as he's preaching this, this, this great uh, excitement comes over the land. But in verse 7, Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. They held their lineage as so important. They're Pharisees, the sons of Pharisees. Paul says that about himself later on, bragging and then showing how wrong it was to brag about that. 
But here are ones who would say, well, we know we're of the kingdom of God because we're sons of Abraham. And John says, well, I don't see any fruits of repentance in you. You've come to this baptism of repentance. Where is your repentance? Don't think just because you're a son of Abraham that you're saved. God can make sons of Abraham from these very stones. And then Jesus challenges them along similar lines in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, starting at verse 31. These are some verses that we know really well, but we don't consider the context perhaps so often. John chapter 8, starting at verse 31. Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? It's ironic because they are technically in bondage to the Romans as they speak. They aren't a sovereign nation anymore and haven't been as long as these people have been alive. For centuries they haven't been a sovereign nation. Because of their infidelity, God had sent them into the hand of others. And yet they claim this freedom in Abraham. And again, they're leaning on their lineage. But notice what Jesus begins to say at verse 37. I know that you're Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. And they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. They've already claimed two now. <laughs> Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceed forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you're not able to listen to my word. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convinces me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. You're not sons of Abraham. You don't understand the things Abraham understands. You don't understand the same language that Abraham spoke that I'm speaking to you now. The language of truth. You've rejected it in favor of who your real father is. John and Jesus challenged the Pharisees to consider whose lineage were they really? Are they Abraham's lineage through the faith that God had given to him? Or are they just physical descendants that are acting more like the ungodly Abraham of old before he became the father of the faithful? Paul himself had been a Pharisee, as I mentioned, and we learn a lot about the Pharisees through things that Paul says about his former way of life. In Acts chapter 26... In Acts chapter 26, as Paul's making his defense of the gospel, he's talking about why someone like him would believe in something that seems so ludicrous. It's, it's very convincing. He was one who was against it. He was completely opposed, but he was convinced of the truth, and so he changed. That's what, God, that's what Jesus and John were expecting the Pharisees to do. But in Acts 26, verses 4 and 5, My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. 
He said something very similar in chapter 22 and verse 3. I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. He was according to the strictness of our law, the strictest sect, the Pharisees. In the book of Philippians, in chapter 3, again, he talks about what he used to be, and now he's talking about how he's thrown it away, that it's no value to him. But look what he says. I also might have confidence in the flesh. This is Philippians 3, 4. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning the zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He then goes on to say, but I don't count any of these things worth anything. But that's where he was. He was one who counted himself blameless according to the law, even though he had just said he persecuted the church of God. He was so zealous in doing that. That's where he realized he wasn't blameless. He was going against God's will. It's interesting to think about this, but the Pharisees often challenged Jesus as well. <laughs> they wanted things to be done their way. They didn't see Jesus doing things their way. Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. That time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. They challenged what Jesus was doing. In verses 9 through 14, Jesus heals on the Sabbath. And they challenge him and say, You're doing works on the Sabbath. You can't be doing these things. Further down, verses 22 through 28, they challenge him again and they end up saying, It is only by Beelzebub that he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. This is the Pharisees saying this about him and challenging him over and again down into Matthew chapter 15 where they say he is transgressing the commandment of the elders by not washing his hands before he eats and he's teaching his disciples to do so. They're laying challenges at Jesus' feet because they believe they have the full understanding of the law. Well, that's the Pharisees, the strict, literal, self-righteous sect of the Jews the scribes are also mentioned. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Who are the scribes? Sometimes some of your versions may have them as doctors or lawyers. These are people who made the handwritten copies of the ancient scrolls. They didn't have the printing press like we do. These were men who were tasked with writing the same thing over and over and over again. They became perfect at it. And they made these really great ancient scrolls. And they were so careful about it that if they messed up one word while they were writing, they'd destroy the whole scroll and sometimes the pen they were writing with as well. They wanted it to be exact. These men were really uh, dedicated to the work they were doing because they knew it was the Word of God. And they knew the letter of the law. These are people that if you had a question about the text, you went to them. If you had a question about interpretation and application, you go to the Pharisees. But about the text, you go see the scribes. They know the text. They've got it memorized. They're writing it so many times. But they understand the letter of the law. And they were lawyers. <laughs> In the strictest sense, perhaps, as we might consider them today, they began to judge others based on the letter of the law. They knew it so well, and they could twist it around to make it sort of seem like things were in their favor and these other people weren't keeping it as well. And we see that Jesus also challenged them. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 41, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, 
an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. No sign will be given to it except for the prophet of Jonah. You think about what they're asking for. They've seen his teaching. They've heard his teaching. They can't refute it. None of them convicts him of sin. He said that to the Pharisees in John chapter 8. They couldn't. They've tried according to their traditions. And he says, well, you're keeping the traditions of men and not the word of God. So they can't convict him based on the law. So they begin to ask for signs. They want some kind of proof. Well, he's already given them several proofs right in their midst. One was healing, but it was on the Sabbath, so they discounted that. Another was the distribution of loaves and fishes among thousands and thousands of people, but they rejected that. And so they're asking for another sign, and he says, it's an adulterous generation that seeks after a sign. I want you to understand what he's saying here. It's the same thing, basically, that he told them in John chapter 8. It's the children of adultery that want some proof who the father is. <laughs> they want the rights that the father has. Well, prove which one's our father. <laughs> and so that's what they're saying. If you're the son of God, you don't need proof. You don't need that kind of proof. You know your lineage. But if you're doubtful, we'll start seeking for some proof. <laughs> and Jesus says, you're an adulterous generation. You don't belong to the same father I belong to. You're seeking for these proofs after he really had already given them to him. In chapter 23 of Matthew, I'm not going to read the chapter, but the whole chapter over and over, he says, Woe to you, scribes. Woe to you, Pharisees. Verse 14, you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. You will receive greater condemnation. Woe, you scribes and Pharisees, over and over and over again. They're doing things for pretense. They're doing things to make them look good before the people while behind the scenes they're stealing and robbing and not serving God. It's interesting that as Paul is talking to the Corinthians about the wisdom of this age, he includes the scribe in those wise fools, those sophomores uh, that uh, are uh, arguing to their own destruction. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? They knew the letter of God's law, but they really relied on their own wisdom, their own understanding of it, instead of really relying on what it said. If they had lived by the letter of the law, that had been better than by their own twisted interpretations. And we see then that the scribes would challenge Jesus together with the Pharisees. In Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 3 and verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. When we saw that in Matthew, it was the Pharisees who were saying that. The scribes have been paying attention. <laughs> They're also accusing him of the same thing. They're both making the same challenge. In Luke chapter 20, Luke chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. As it happened on one of those days, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel that the chief priests and the scribes, together with the elders, confronted him and spoke to him, saying, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is it who gave you this authority? We are the leaders of this temple. We are the rulers here. We didn't teach you these things. We didn't give you the authority to turn over the money changers' tables. Who gave you that authority? And that's where Jesus says, Well, you tell me this. Where did the authority of the baptism of John come from? Is that from heaven or from men? And they began to reason among themselves. They didn't want to give a straight answer because Jesus would condemn them for not submitting to the baptism of John if they said it's from God. If they said it was from men, then the people would be mad with them because they thought John was a prophet. And so they said, we don't know. <laughs> They're lawyers, doctors, looking for a way out and trying to justify the decisions they made. They would have been among the most respected people in all Israel. In Acts chapter 5, Gamaliel, who is a Pharisee, 
He is well respected by all the people. He listens when they want to beat Peter and John. He says, we can't really do anything to them. We'll be fighting against God if this is really from him. And so there's this respect. Acts 22.3, Paul calls on that. You know that I was a Pharisee, the strictest sect, the most respected sect of our father's religion. You think about this, how it would be if I were to go before a Catholic and say, well, your righteousness needs... Righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of the Pope or you're never going to get into the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> they consider the Pope to be, that's the highest level that you can attain of righteousness here on the earth. And that's the way the Jews would have looked at the scribes and the Pharisees. These are the religious leaders. No one can attain to their righteousness. Jesus says, you need to exceed their righteousness. And he says it tongue in cheek because theirs is no righteousness. It's a self-righteousness. And so he's going to begin to teach them how to do that and what it's going to take. They're known for their zeal. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, they've got a zeal, but not according to knowledge. So it wouldn't be surprising to see them accusing Jesus when they believe he's tampering with Moses' law. And that's really where our context picks up in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5. Do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Some of the things Jesus is teaching, that's not the way the Pharisees teach it. That's not the way the scribes teach it. Is he changing things around? No, he's teaching the true fulfillment. He's teaching what those things were really pointing to. And yet they were accusing him of telling people to stop abiding in the law. They taught the same things about Paul and Stephen later. I want to look at Stephen's account. Stephen is preaching the gospel that Christ taught. He's teaching the fulfillment of the old law in Christ. But look what the accusation is. Acts chapter 6, starting at verse 9. There arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. They secretly induced men to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not seek does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. <laughs> Is that what he was teaching? He was fulfilling. He's not teaching to destroy, but to fulfill. It is interesting, though, that from the very outset, when Jesus first began to teach in Capernaum, that he taught them as one have, having authority and not as the scribes, Mark 1, 22. They were astonished when they heard him teach. He didn't teach the kind of wishy-washy religion of the scribes and Pharisees. He taught with authority. And he backed his authority up with clear application of God's word and the miracles they were asking for. It wasn't without precedent they would be asking for miracles. Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 5. It's interesting that they're asking according to the letter of the law, and Jesus is giving them according to the spirit of the law. Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 5. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments, and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death, 
because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage, to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk, so you shall put away the evil from your midst. They were testing Jesus according to this test that was given by Moses. Has he talked about signs and they haven't come to pass? Well, no, everything he's said has come to pass. Everything he's predicted, everything he's done, they're real bona fide miracles. Is he saying, let's serve another God? Well, no, that's not what he's saying. <laughs> he's saying, let's serve the God of our fathers. Let's serve the God of Isaac, of Abraham, and Jacob. Let's serve the living God. And he's showing the flaws in their doctrine <laughs> as they were serving according to the tradition of men and not according to the word of God. And they don't like it. And so they're looking for a way to put him to death. In John chapter 7, we're not going to read the text there, but Jesus again says, if you don't believe me, believe the works I do. The works are speaking of who I am. The works have backed up who I am. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a member of the council, had come to Jesus by night in John chapter 3, and he said, sir, we know that you must be a prophet of God because no one can do the things you're doing except God be with him. Nicodemus could see it. He was honest. Though he was a Pharisee, he was seeking for truth. And he saw it in Jesus, and he sought him out to talk about it. So it's no surprise they would be challenging Jesus because they thought he was changing the law. But Jesus makes it clear that's not what he's doing. He hasn't come to change, but to fulfill. He says, not one jot, not one stroke will by any means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Therefore, anyone who teaches to forsake this law will be called least in the kingdom of God. But whoever does it and teaches it shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is not changing the law. He's calling people actually to fulfill it. He's come to fulfill it perfectly. And he's calling on all of Israel to follow in his footsteps. It's the reason God gave the law. Deuteronomy 29, 29. You've heard me quote this verse so many times. This is such a, a beautiful verse to describe the purpose behind the law. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The law was given to be fulfilled, was given to be obeyed, was not given to be theorized about, philosophized about, and then used to justify the not keeping of it. That's where the Pharisees and scribes had gotten to. And Jesus is going to point that out in this next text very strictly. So the challenge Jesus is laying down is to practice, is to do a righteousness that exceeds that theoretical righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, that religious righteousness. And so you may consider righteousness on a continuum. So you've got on the one side unrighteous, evil. You've got on the far side God and His absolute perfect righteousness. And in between here somewhere, you've got the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, most of the people are down here looking up and saying, I can never get to that point. And Jesus says, oh, yes, you must. You must come beyond that point. You must near the righteousness of God and leave behind this false righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. That's what Jesus is challenging us to do. And so we're not to look to religious leaders and try to imitate their sort of righteousness. We're to look to God. We're to look at His Word and say, I can do that. Now, there are good men. Paul says, imitate me as I am also an imitator of Christ. But the focus is not him. It's Christ. He says, look to Christ as I am. Do as I'm doing and looking to Christ. But there, unfortunately, are religious men who would call people to be like they are when they're falling short as the scribes and Pharisees are doing. 
there's a challenge for us to seek righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, what is righteousness? It's a word that's often translated justice in our New Testament, even in our Old Testament. We saw it even today in the, the book of Habakkuk, uh, this idea of the righteous or the just will live by faith. That's this word in the, in the Hebrew. It's also tra- translated that way in the Greek. And what it really means is the state of being as one ought to be. That you're right-wise, that's where our word righteous comes from. You're pointed in the right direction. You're facing right-wise as you ought to be. It's the condition that's acceptable, not before men. You're not just doing enough so that men will look at you and think you're okay. It's what's acceptable before God. And so there's a deeper aspect to real righteousness than just what other people are going to think about you. And that's unfortunately where we limit ourselves sometimes. I just want to be seen as righteous. I don't really want to live righteously. I want to be seen as righteous by others. But that's not righteousness. Righteousness is what is acceptable to God. Thayer defines it as integrity, virtue, purity of life, rightness, correctness of thinking, feeling, and acting. Often we want to just have the correctness sort of thinking and feeling. We're going to be okay. But it involves actions that are motivated by what is right. Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount has already been speaking about righteousness. Look at uh, chapter 5 in the Beatitudes, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. It's not something that I've attained and I'm going to sit on it. It's something that I'm always seeking for. I'm hungering for righteousness. I'm going to keep going. I'm on this continuum somewhere, but I've got to keep approximating, keep getting closer to the righteousness of God. I'm thirsting and hungering always for righteousness. He's telling this to people that are part of God's kingdom. Seek and thirst for what is right. And interestingly enough, verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Real righteousness makes people uncomfortable. (laughs) A lot of times the person who is really seeking for righteousness will be called self-righteous. Oh, you're holier than thou. You think you're better than everybody else. No. I think God is absolutely holy and righteous, and I want to be with Him and in His presence. And so it changes the way I live, the way I think, the way I talk, the way I act. And if that makes you uncomfortable, well, maybe you need to change too. Won't you come with me? That's what we're calling to. That's what Noah did, preacher of righteousness for 120 years or so, calling people to come onto that ark. There were eight people in the end. People were uncomfortable with that brings about persecution if it's done properly. Not that it seeks persecution, but it makes people uncomfortable. So then Jesus begins the contrast all through chapter 5 and into chapter 6, their righteousness, the Pharisees' righteousness, with God's righteousness. We're not going to get into reading all of these texts, but over and over, there are six different times in Matthew 5 where he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And he talks about six different categories. The first is about Murder. You've heard it said that you shall not murder. Well, I tell you, don't hate your brother. Don't call your brother a fool. Don't think ill of someone else because that leads to murder from your heart. The problem is not the act of murder. That's not what God was concerned about. He is. But it's what leads up to that act of murder. It's your hatred for your fellow man. Why did Cain murder Abel? Well, because he hated him first. And then he led up to his murder. So I'm telling you, watch your heart before the actions come. What about adultery? 
Well, don't commit adultery. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Verse 27, quoting the Ten Commandments. That's the letter of the law. But they don't say anything about lusting after the neighbor's wife. That's where Jesus says, you're already committing adultery. If you've got your eyes on your neighbor's wife with impure intent, your heart is wrong. Well, if you're going to have a divorce, make sure you give her a writ of divorce, they say. Make it legitimate. Hand her the letter that Moses said. Then it's okay. No, it's not. Jesus says, even doing that, you are causing her to commit adultery. And then anyone who marries a divorced person also commits adultery. So you've got these legalistic Pharisees who are handing out these legal letters of divorce thinking they've been justified for their evil actions and putting away their wife because they didn't like her anymore. And what they've ended up doing is creating four people that are adulterers. <laughs> That's not the justice of God. That's not righteousness. Righteousness seeks to maintain one flesh until death. <laughs> That's what God created. But unrighteousness seeks to find a loophole in the law that will let me write out a little letter and hand it to her and then I can go marry the one I really wanted and then she has to go marry somebody else so she can have financial stability and there's four people in adultery. Well, that's so hard in today's society to talk about that. That divorce causes adultery if there's other marriages afterward. But that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. Their unrighteousness was causing that. Jesus said it was because of the hardness of their hearts that Moses even gave that law. Insert in that phrase, hardness of heart, sin. <laughs> because of your sinfulness, because of your unrighteousness, that law was given. It was really a protection, not a permission. And they use it as permission. In Luke chapter 10 you see very clearly this mindset as this uh, lawyer wants to justify himself. Certain lawyer stood up and tested Jesus saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And then he says, You must love your neighbor as yourself. And part of his answer there after saying that to love God above all. And the, one, the man wanting to justify himself said, Well, who is my neighbor? <laughs> I want to find a way around actually doing what you said. So let's, let's narrow this down a little bit so I can figure out just who do I really have to serve here? Well, you have to serve God. And if you're serving God, everybody is your neighbor. That's the answer Jesus gave him he didn't want to hear. In the end, that's where it came from. But they would legitimize their not keeping the law by stating some phrase from the law. That's what a lawyer does. Regarding oaths, going back in Matthew 5, now 33 through 37, do not swear falsely, but perform your oaths to the Lord. That is, if you mention his name in the oath. But if you just mention the temple or the treasury, you don't have to keep it. You didn't mention the Lord. Yeah, you did. You swore you would do it. If you swear, you're swearing before God. doesn't matter. Keep your promises that you make because they are before God. What about this law of the, of the uh, lex talionis? Um, they give an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Matthew 5, verse 38. That's meant to limit how far they could legally go. When someone got injured in a fight or in an accident, the worst you can do is they took out an eye. The worst you can do is an eye. Don't kill somebody over an eye. That was the point of that. They're saying, if he took out an eye, then you have the right to go take his eye. Go take it. <laughs> no. What Jesus says, if he took out your eye, turn your face. Let him have the other one. Whew. That's where Jesus was going. <laughs> Grace toward men, not exacting every punishment the way you think it ought to be done. And what about loving your neighbor? You've heard love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Love everybody. Pray for your enemy. Your enemy has a soul that also needs to be saved. Love them all. It's interesting that verse 48 is really a conclusion to the statement that Jesus began up there in verse 20. 
about being exceedingly righteous above the, the Pharisees and scribes. He says, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. That'll help you attain to the righteousness of your Father. That word there, perfect, means mature. It doesn't mean you've done everything perfectly. It means you're attaining to maturity. You're growing on that continuum toward the righteousness of God when you're praying for and loving your enemies. That's hard to do. Don't just love the ones who love you. Everybody does that. Pray for and love your enemies. And so he gives them this list of how they're not keeping the law. Every one of these issues starts in the heart, not in the action at the end. That's all they're looking at with the law. We can govern the action. You ought to be governing the heart. All you're trying to do with the way you use the law is to salve your conscience. After you've already done wrong in your heart, you say, well, the law, though, technically would forgive me for that. So I'll go ahead and keep doing it. No. God made the law to govern your heart, not just your actions. The heart that's governed properly will change the actions on the end of it. That's really what we've been seeing all through. When we get into chapter 6, Jesus then begins with concluding statements that are based on this, this basis of teaching. Therefore, but when, and when, but you, moreover. So because of this basis of seeking this righteousness, now when you go do these actions, do them differently. Twelve times he uses those kind of statements. And the point of all this is Jesus is seeking to convert the action from mere external motivation, just going to get the thing done, just going through the religious motion, to internal motivation. Not to be seen by men, but by God. Notice in chapter 5, verse 16, right before the text we started reading, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. If he had stopped there, the Pharisees would have been happy. <laughs> and glorify your Father in heaven. You need to do things in a way that nobody even notices it was you that did it, but they're all thanking God that it got done. That's the point. What is the, the duty of the citizen kingdom? So make the king look good. Yeah, the citizen of the kingdom is meant to make the king look good by doing the king's work. The motivating factor ought to be God, our king. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3-5. through 5. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. The instructions that Peter gave to the wives describes this idea of godliness that comes from the heart and is visible then outwardly. And of course, we recently have been looking at this in Romans chapter 12, but this idea of the living sacrifice is something that begins internally. It starts with my heart and it shows itself in my actions. And if I make this sacrifice daily, my actions will be different. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, your heart, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You're moving on that continuum closer to God. You've exceeded the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. They're not sacrificing anything. They're doing what looks good, and they're getting their praise from men. You lay yourself on the altar to God. Let Him see your sacrifice, and you'll get praise from Him. Jesus is rightfully indignant with the scribes and Pharisees. By the time He gets to Matthew 15, He calls them out for being hypocrites. He's dealt with them for over a year and a half by this point. He's been teaching the truth, laying it at their feet, and over and over and over they reject it to the point of calling him Beelzebub, to the point of begging for more signs when they've seen so many. They're looking for any justification to condemn him 
And so he is righteously justified when he calls them out as hypocrites and says you're making the commandment of God of no effect. You've rejected God's will. Paul explains to us more deeply this lesson that Jesus is teaching. Paul was a Pharisee. He's got it. He's learned it. Romans chapter 10, verses 1 and 3. I made an allusion to this text earlier. This is what Paul says is his desire for those who have missed the point. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. They are keeping the law perfectly. Why do they need God? They've got this law that God handed to Israel and they're better at it than anybody else. They can just set God aside and they'll become the gods over these people. They would never say that. We would never say, oh, we've got it made. We're the church of Christ. But sometimes our conscience betrays that. Sometimes our thinking betrays that. Are we submitting to the righteousness of God or have we got it figured out and we're righteous now because of that? That's what the Pharisees were dealing with. In the end, it made them no better, no different than the pagans who were living by their own code of what was right and wrong and not even really submitting to it. Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 25. Think about how this would sting the Pharisee to understand this is pointed at him. Although they knew God... They did not glorify him as God. Paul said they didn't submit to his righteousness. They weren't glorifying him. They wanted to make their own righteousness. They were ignorant of his. They weren't thankful. They were futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. They professed to be wise, yet had become fools. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. You worship according to the doctrines of men and have rejected the commandment of God. That's what Jesus said. That's what Paul's saying here. Now he's talking about pagans here. But don't you see how this fit the Pharisees and the scribes of Jesus' day? Does it fit us? I dare ask, does it fit us? Have we rejected what God has said in favor of what we're doing? Therefore God gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. They continued in unrighteousness because they had rejected the Creator and had worshipped and served the creature instead. And so they were no better than all of lost pagan humanity, even though they had the law. And that's really was the crux of Paul's argument in Romans. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the repentance point. That's the admittance. Philippians chapter 3, that's where Paul had arrived. That's how he could write these things in Romans. Philippians 3, I want to read verses 2 through 11. We've read part of this, but I want to... Look at where Paul ended up when he finally humbled himself and realized that his righteousness was getting him nowhere. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. These are the circumcisers. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ 
and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. I'm going to lay myself on that altar. I'm going to die daily and be transformed by that death and carry my cross and be sanctified by the righteousness that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And so Jesus challenged us as he challenged the Pharisees, have our righteousness to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. How in the world is that possible? Here are these people that are so righteous, at least in the eyes of the world, in their own eyes. How can my righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, Paul just told us, when it's not my righteousness. It's what we sang about. Jesus Christ is my righteousness. My obedience to Him is what puts me in a right state and guides me as I ought to be before God. It's not because I'm so good. It's because He is so good at saving even me. Really, this truth has been there. In plain clothes, it hasn't been hidden. It's been there the whole time. It's what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount when He said, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Don't be distracted by seeking your righteousness. Don't be distracted by the things of this world that look good. Seek His kingdom and His righteousness. And God will give you what you need to do that. It's also what He told the scribes and the Pharisees as He berated them in Matthew chapter 15. These people draw near to Me with their mouth. They honor Me with their lips. But their heart is far from Me. They have no faith. They're doing by rote. They're doing by religious repetition things that their mouth and their lips can say, and they've actually turned that on its head and made it the doctrines of men. Paul concluded there in Romans 10, as he was begging the Jews to listen, he said, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Stop standing on the law of Moses. Come to Christ. Quit trying to save yourself and in so doing, rejecting the Savior, come to Christ. So as we consider this idea of righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, we've got to understand, as Paul did, we cannot justify ourselves. That's what we try to do. We try to cover up and hide our sin. We try to convince ourselves that it really wasn't that bad and that God's law here says, well, everybody stumbles, so I guess I'm just a stumbler. That's not it. We are condemned. We must admit, I know I am a sinner. And I'm condemned. I have no righteousness to call my own. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and I'm one of them. God, I need your help. I need your righteousness. We can be justified in Christ. That's the same argument. The very next verse, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, if I will admit my problem and if I'll bring it to Him. I can be freely justified by Him. I love what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. He speaks of this justification there, but it's the same word, righteousness. That's what we're looking at. This righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. This justification that the Roman Christians are enjoying as he writes the letter. Therefore, having been justified, made righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How? We've laid down our own attempts at self-justification and we've come wholly to Him. 
Do you desire peace with God? <laughs> this lesson talks a lot about looking at what righteousness is meant to look like. It's the spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law. Do you desire peace with God? It's only possible if you're justified by faith in Christ. He came, he paid a price that you couldn't pay because he did fulfill the law completely. Things we couldn't do, he did. And he bought our sin with his blood. He paid the price that was our due, our eternal death. We want to help you today if you desire that righteousness that comes from knowing Christ. If you're willing to come forward confessing that you're a sinner, repentant of those sins, submitting to Christ's will, confessing that he is the Lord, the Son of God, and submitting to his will in baptism, you can rise to a new life today, made righteous by his blood. If as a Christian you've been trying to self-justify, you've been hiding your sin instead of bringing it forward, instead of confessing it to Christ, instead of having it removed by His righteousness, we want to help you with that need as well. Whatever your need may be, bring it to us as we stand and sing this song to encourage your obedience.